Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Persons, selves, souls, loops. If the generals back in the train could see what I saw, would they still want me to kill him? And what would his people back home want if they ever learned just how far from them he'd really gone? He broke from them, and then he broke from himself. I'd never seen a man so broken up and ripped apart. The eye, a single integrated self. The brain, a jungle of neurons. A seething soup of particles. World-renowned author, Douglas Hofstetter joins us to discuss his latest book, I Am a Strange Loop. Beware, your brain may no longer be the boss. Is the brain my computer, or am I my brain's press agent? Coming up on Philosophy Talk, after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk. The program that questions everything. Except your intelligence, I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW in San Francisco. But we're continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, our topic is Person, Selves, Souls, and Loop. Loops with Douglas Hofstetter, author of I Am a Strange Loop. We're going to begin our conversation by being puzzled about the nature of the self. Then we'll look at what Hofstetter might mean by calling the self a strange loop. And finally, we'll ask whether the self is a reality or just an illusion. Now, Ken, Douglas Hofstetter is going to have to explain what he means by a strange loop. But maybe you and I should start by getting clear about persons, selves, and souls. At least clear enough to explain what the philosophical problems might be. Well, let's start with persons. In ordinary parlance, person sounds like kind of a synonym for human, but you can imagine all sorts of non-human persons, uh, intelligent robots, extraterrestrials of all kinds. All those would be persons if they were complicated enough, but not human. Uh, not to mention Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge and Mickey Mouse. If they really existed, they wouldn't be humans. They wouldn't be homo sapiens. They would be two unusually intelligent ducks and one unusually intelligent mouse. And don't forget one very, very rich duck, a really, really nice person to know. Yes. So I, I think uh, uh, they would be persons. Uh, they would be entitled to the rights that you and I have as persons, even though we typically call those human rights. Well, uh, yeah, that's certainly right. Now, John Locke says that a person is a being that has reason and reflection, is conscious of itself, as itself, and as it, it's conscious of itself as a being with a continued existence through time. And he thought that was important because he thinks persons are the kinds of beings that can take responsibility for and be held responsible for their actions. And oh, Scrooge and uh, Donald and Mickey, they, they would seem to meet those requirements too, right? Well, let, let's look at how this works uh, step by step. Let's take an ordinary duck. Now, I would certainly say an ordinary duck is conscious in some sense. It, it's aware of things. It has sensations that give it information about the external world, discriminates what's going on about it, at least to a certain extent. It feels things, and I would think it must feel pleasure and pain of some sort. But does it meet Locke's definition of being conscious of itself or of itself as itself? Well, I think it's probably not. It's conscious of things around it, as you said, and surely it's conscious of some parts of its own body. It controls its body. It kind of decides when to flap its wings. But is it conscious of itself as a thinking, quacking being? I doubt it. Probably not. Okay, let's let's ignore ducks now uh, for for the moment and adopt Locke, what Locke said as a working definition of personhood. <clears throat> but what about self? Locke actually used the term self in defining personhood. What's a self? 
Well, I think the word self is usually connected in philosophy with the thing we decided ducks probably don't have a certain kind of self-knowledge. Philosophers usually connect a, a self-knowledge of the appropriate sort with the word I. When you use the word I, that shows that you have a concept of yourself as, as one thing among others, but at the same time, you have a special relation to that one thing among others, right. and so you use the word I. The special is important. The special is important. Imagine a computer, computer 2987, that take, keeps track of all the electrical expenditures of all the computers on campus, and it, it has a line that says, computer 2987 uses a lot of electricity this month, but it never says, I used a lot of electricity. It, it wouldn't have a self. At least it wouldn't have a self concept or something like that. All right. Now, I'll have to defer to you about the soul, since you're the African-American in the group. Oh, John. Soul, though, in the, not, not that sense, but soul is usually a, a term from religion for that part or aspect of the individual that survives the body's death and may have to pay the price or reap the reward in the great hereafter. If you're a religious person of a sort, you probably think that the soul is the self and that a person is a person because they have a soul. But but what if you're a materialist, a skeptic? You don't believe in souls, you don't believe in the hereafter, you don't believe in the supernatural. It still seems to me you can believe in selves and persons. I think that's right. So soul may be a somewhat supernatural concept, but the concept of self and person are used by non-supernatural people, like psychologists and psychiatrists every day. In fact, our roving philosophical reporter, Polly Stryker, talked to a psychiatrist who's had some deep insights into the nature of the self. She files this report. Know thyself, said the Delphic Oracle. But can we really? Julie Walters struggles with this in the 1983 film Educating Rita with Michael Caine. You think I was having an affair the way he behaves? You know, perhaps you are having an affair. Good way, I'm not. What time have I got for an affair? Jesus, I'm busy enough finding myself, let alone finding anyone else. I'm beginning to find me. It's great. It is, you know, Frank. It might sound selfish, but all I want for the time being is what I'm finding inside me. On some level, we're all trying to find ourselves. But what is this thing called the self? Our sense of self is built up over years of memories, events, things we've been through, associations, that have become part of our assumed knowledge base in the brain. Dr. Sofia Vinogradov is a psychiatrist at the University of California, San Francisco. You know, you can't remember, I can't remember when I learned that I was female, that I was a girl. It's just part of what I know about the world. Neuroscience is beginning to lift the veil on what the self is and where in our brains it might be located. Dr. Vinogradov conducts experiments that show that memories are stored in a specific part of the brain, the medial prefrontal cortex. What's interesting about this medial prefrontal region is it's, it's kind of deep in there and kind of tucked away in there. It's not on the surface of the brain, which again kind of makes sense from an evolutionary point of view that the part of the brain that's going to hold or be activated during this important information or, or, or be critical for processing this information would be in a very protected area of the brain. This may be the area, hidden deep in the brain, that contains the layers of ourselves, the child and the adult. One thing about the sense of self and consciousness is that it is something that, that is stable over time. For example, I was remembering the other day when I was four going on five, and I remember just thinking that turning five was such a big deal. And, and that memory of myself at, at the age of four feels like the same self as the self that I am now. And yet when you think about it, many, if not most, of the molecules in my body are different. 
and yet there's some essence that has remained uh, stable. That is my sense of self. Perhaps there is no single self. We all have different personas. Daughter, mother, friend. I believe we have many inner selves. It's, it's working to find out ways in which which you can be at peace with those various selves in a way that's adaptive and serves you well. Some special cases take this idea of multiple selves in unusual directions. Consider the epileptic patient who's had a callosotomy, or the hemispheres of the brain separated surgically. In one experiment that was done with a split-brain patient, when the left hem this was a young man in his late teens, um, when his left hemisphere was asked, what do you want to be when you grow up, that side of the brain very sort of uh, politely uh, answered, I want to be a draftsman. And when the right hemisphere was asked the same question, that part of the brain answered, I want to be a race car driver. Or alien hand syndrome, where the hemispheres of the brain start conducting certain motor functions independently. For example, a man knows it's time for him to get up and, and get ready for work, and he's getting himself dressed, and his right hand is buttoning his shirt, and then at the same time, his other hand is unbuttoning the shirt. Maybe part of the joy of trying to know oneself is the constant process of calibration and recalibration of what we think we know about ourselves. We think we have a master narrator, an interpreter in there who's deciding what it is we want to do, and that is our sense of self, and it's an integrated whole, but in fact, there are other, there are, uh, other desires uh, within us that every now and then in these special clinical conditions, we can see they get released. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Polly Stryker. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.